Father, we ask for the teaching ministry of your Holy Spirit that you would speak through me simply, clearly, that your word be planted in our hearts, change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So there was this guy, and he got invited by a friend to go to a joke teller's conference. And so when they got to the conference, he sat down and thought, this, this will be interesting. And, and the first guy gets up, walks to the podium and says, the number 24, and everybody cracks up. And then the next guy gets up, walks to the pulpit and says, uh, 41, and everybody just stitches laughing. And the third guy comes up and says, 19. And as people are laughing hysterically at that one. And so finally, the guy looks at his friend and says, what's up with this? He says, people are just saying a number and they're laughing. He says, oh, well, he said, the deal is we've all heard these jokes so many times that we've numbered them. So as soon as we hear the number, we know what joke it is and we laugh. So he thought, well, I can do that. So he comes up to the front, stands behind the podium, says, 29. Nobody laughs. So he walks down, sits with his friend and says, what just happened there? I mean, other guys said the number they laughed. I said a number they didn't laugh. He looked at him and said, well, some people just don't know how to tell a joke. <laughs> and some people just don't know how to tell a story, but God knows how to tell a story. And that's really what the Bible is. The Bible is God's grand story. And that's really the the, the actual uh, sermon series that we're doing. We're taking the Old Testament this year and the New Testament next year and giving a real broad understanding of how it all fits together, then kind of delving in at different times for application into our lives. And so far, we have started with the Old Testament and divided the Old Testament into six parts. The first part is beginnings. That's the book of Genesis. The next part will be wilderness wanderings. And that's going to be the next four books, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the wilderness wanderings of Israel in the wilderness. And then the next one is Promised Land, where we have the book of Joshua. He leads them into the Promised Land, and of course, Judges. And then the next part is United Kingdom under King David. And following that will be the Divided Kingdom after Solomon, his son. And then the final part of the Old Testament really is Captivity, into Babylon, and then the coming kingdom. And that really is a good summary of the Old Testament. So far, we've done the beginnings part. We went through Genesis, and now we are moving into the wilderness wanderings part where we spent the last couple messages. And so we're going to continue with that part of wilderness wanderings, which really encompasses the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, a little background here as we jump into the wilderness wanderings, before Israel wandered the wilderness for 40 years, they were in captivity and slavery and bondage in Egypt for 430 years to the day. So how did they get out? How they got out is Moses was sent by God to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And Pharaoh, if you remember, resist, doesn't want to let all this slave, slave labor go. So what does God do? God is going to put pressure upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt by sending 10 plagues. All through those plagues, Pharaoh resists and hardens his heart until the 10th plague. If you remember, the 10th plague was the death of all the firstborn of Egypt. But God told the Israelites what they were to do on that night 
was to slaughter one lamb per household. Take the blood of that lamb and, and paint it on the doorpost of their home and on, on the lintel of each home. And what that would do is the angel of death, when he came over Egypt, he would see the homes that had the blood of the lamb applied and he would pass over those homes, not killing the firstborn. He would pass over. But every home that did not have the blood applied, then the death of the firstborn would happen, human and animal alike. And so before the event, God actually gave very specific instructions and told the people, leading up to that night, gather all your possessions, gather your family, gather your livestock, and prepare food quickly. Food like, prepared quickly like bread without leaven. And he let them know that there's going to be a, a commemoration of this event was going to be celebrated annually after that, as we know as today is the Passover. And that night, God did exactly what he said he would do. And every Egyptian household was filled with wailing that night because of the death of the firstborn. And they did not have the blood of the lamb applied on their home. So when that happened that night, Pharaoh was finally ready to let Moses and the Israelites go. He was ready to let them go. In fact, he commanded them to leave. He wanted them out of there. And so Israel left that night, not only with their families and their possessions, but the Egyptians gave them precious things like silver and gold. So they took much of the Egyptians' possessions with them as they walked out of Egypt. Now, as they're led out of Egypt, God doesn't lead them directly to the promised land because it says in the scriptures that because they would have encountered enemies and then they would have been in fear returned to Egypt. So God led them on a very curious route to the promised land and actually led them to the edge of the Red Sea. Right at that time, they are now at, at the Red Sea where they cannot pass. And Pharaoh at that point has decided he's changed his mind. And he's now sent his armies, his chariots, his soldiers to go get them and kill them. So now you've got all the Egyptian army coming after Israel and they're backed up against the Red Sea. But God has a plan. So God holds off the armies of Egypt with a pillar of fire. And then he sends a strong wind and separates an opening into the Red Sea where there's a wall of water on the left and the right. And there is now an opening in the Red Sea. And so all the people, all the Israelites had to do then is to cross through the opening God had made on dry land. And then when the Egyptians decided to follow to try to get, catch them and kill them, God had the waters fall in on them and destroyed the Egyptian army. So now that Israelites are safe on the other side, they break out into this song of praise to God. So that's two stories. I'm summarizing them, summarizing the story of the Passover the story of the parting of the Red Sea. But I put them together because I want you to think about what do those two stories have in common? What those two stories have in common is the grace of God. At both times, God did the deliverance all on his own. He totally delivered them through the Passover and through the parting of the Red Sea. Now, I want you to think about why I'm saying what these two events have in common is grace. I want you to think about this. It wasn't the best and most moral Israelites, the holiest 
the godliest, the ones who were most faithful, wasn't those who the angel of the Lord, angel of death passed over. It was those who put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. The New Testament tells us that Jesus is our Passover lamb. And today it isn't those of us who are the most holy and most righteous, most, you know, morally careful and pure, or even the ones who have the, you know, their spiritual disciplines the most lined out that are going to pass, the angel of death's going to pass over us and we're going to go into heaven. It's not those who have worked, you know, their way to, you know, somehow merit God's deliverance that receives salvation. It's those who've applied the blood of the Lamb of God, who we clearly see in the New Testament is Jesus Christ. And how do we apply the blood of the Lamb? By simply repenting and believing in Jesus as our Savior and Lord. But I want you to, so I want you to see that it was all about grace that people got delivered, you know, from Egypt. But it's also all about grace through the parting of the Red Sea. It tells us the waters were divided. The Israelites passed through on dry ground with a wall of water on the left and right. Now, it wasn't just the Israelites who were the most holy, you know, somehow merited going across. It was all of them. God did all the work. All they had to do is walk across. But I want you to know, just knowing people, some of the Israelites probably went across with full faith, confidence. Our God did this. You know, we're victorious and we got our family and we got our stuff and we got their stuff too. And we're walking across with confidence. But knowing people, with two million people crossing, there had to be some of them walking across the parting of the Red Sea going, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. I know I'm going to die. I'm going to die. See, it wasn't the, their quality of faith that saved them. It's the object of their faith that saved them. Their Redeemer, their Savior, their Lord, their King. But I want to look at this verse, Exodus 14, 13, and 14. Moses says this. He says, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. I mean, the principle of grace couldn't be clearer here. He says, stand still, and God's going to do all the fighting. You can't do it. You can't perform it. You can't even contribute to it. You're not going to do a doggone thing for, for this deliverance. All you're going to do is just walk through. God's doing all of the work. Moses says this. He says, be still and trust the God who will fight for you. Now, in the New Testament, that sounds a lot like Romans 4, 5. Let's read this. It says, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Be still. Don't look to your works. You can't merit salvation. Be still. Receive complete salvation all because of the work that Christ has done for us. It's all by grace. I want to go back to the Red Sea for a moment. On one side of the Red Sea, the Israelites were within reach of their former slave you know, owners, their false masters. So on that side of the Red Sea, before it's parted, they're under the sentence of death. Death is coming their direction. I mean, Pharaoh has said, go get them and kill them. So when they were on that side of the Red Sea, they were reachable. They were under the sentence of death. 
But as soon as they crossed over, they crossed over from death to life. They crossed over from being under condemnation to no longer being under condemnation or having the sentence of death as they crossed the Red Sea. I just want you to see something here because one of the reasons why Christianity is absolutely different than every other religion is because every other religion is like trying to build a bridge to God. It's if I can just do these five things, if I can just, you know, clean up my life, if I can just do enough good deeds. You know, I'm never certain, but I'm just hoping I have enough to reach God and go to heaven. That's how every other religion works. You're never really quite sure you've arrived, but you're trying. You're trying to work your way. That's not so with Christianity. Christianity, one moment you are not regenerate, and the next moment you are regenerate. One minute you're not adopted in the family of God, the next minute you are adopted. See, in Christianity, there is no process. I mean, you're either in the kingdom of darkness or you've been transferred immediately into the kingdom of the beloved Son of God. I've asked people over the years, are you a Christian? And sometimes they'll answer this way, well, I'm trying. That tells me they don't have any idea what Christianity is all about. What makes you a Christian is the change of, a change of status. You were in that kingdom, the domain of darkness, and now you're in this kingdom, the kingdom of the beloved son. You were not in the family of God, but now you've been adopted and you're in the family of God. You were not born again, but now you have been born again. There was a time you were not justified, but under condemnation, and now you have been justified. Bang, it happens like that. There is no process. Now, everything about the Passover and the Red Sea is saying grace, grace, grace. Moses says, stand still and let God fight for you. God is going to do all the work. You can't add to it. You can't contribute to it. He is your Savior. He is your deliverer. Stand and watch him do it. This part is real important because if we think that we can add to God's salvation, if we think that, we actually subtract from it. If you try to do something to merit God's salvation, then you haven't actually believed at all. I mean, you're actually putting your faith in yourself, not him, if you think you've done something to merit it. I want you to notice something else here in this account. When Israelites come up out of Egypt, God leads them to Sinai, Mount Sinai. I think one of the easiest ways to explain the gospel from the Old Testament is not saying the Israelites, because they started to obey God in Egypt, because they started to obey, because they became righteous people, he delivered them. That's not how it happened. He delivered them and then, totally by grace, and then brings them to Mount Sinai and then gives them the law. I want you to notice that order. That's very important. That's the gospel. See, the gospel isn't, I started to obey God and then he saved me because I earned it. No, he saved me and I did nothing to merit it and now I want to obey him. It's very different. We had to get that order right. That's why in Levit Leviticus 11.45, God says, I brought you out of Egypt, therefore be holy. He doesn't say because you were holy, I brought you out of Egypt. No, it's by his grace he brought them out of Egypt. They didn't earn it. He says, therefore, now 
Hey, bring it to Mount Sinai, now be holy. Now walk in my commandments. He's basically saying, when he says, I brought you out of Egypt so you can be holy, he's basically saying that you were saved by faith alone. But not by faith that remains alone. So you're saved by faith, not by works. But if works do not grow out of that faith, then you really didn't have true faith. So we see this in the Exodus narrative. It's amazing. It's just, it's a picture of the gospel. There's something else I want you to see here. Here's what the Hebrew says. When, when Moses says, be still and see the salvation of the Lord in Hebrew, the word, the salvation, salvation of the Lord, salvation, the word is essentially the word Yeshua. When Mary, the mother of Jesus, called him by name, she called him by his name, Yeshua. Yeshua, the Hebrew name, the Hebrew word for salvation. And that's the word that Moses uses. Be still and see Yeshua. See, that's, that's for us today is clear. When our salvation is simply Christ. Just see Christ. He did it all. He did it all on the cross. He bore our sins, absorbed our judgment. Our salvation is in Christ and Christ alone. I couldn't merit it. I can't add to it. He did it all. It's so important that we get this, and I'll tell you why. I want to look at a parable that Jesus points, points out this important principle that I see so many Christians not get, and because of that, start to live a way that's counterproductive to the Great Commission. Let me explain it. Jesus tells this parable in Luke 18. Let's read it. Verse 9, Jesus, it says, And he, Jesus, also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So who is Jesus telling this parable to? He's telling this parable to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And as a result, the result of how they viewed themselves, they viewed others with contempt. Keep that in mind. We're going to come back to that. That's very important. Let's read the parable. Luke 18, starting in verse 10. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Okay, a Pharisee was a religious, Jewish religious leader during the time of Jesus. A tax gatherer was someone who was despised because he was a Jew working for the Romans, collecting taxes from his Jewish brothers and ripping them off in the process. And so he was known for his dishonesty dishonesty, because he was skimming off the top. So those two go to pray, a Pharisee and a tax gatherer. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax gatherer. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes and all that I get. I want you to notice the Pharisee, the religious leader, the one who trusts in himself that he is righteous, in his prayer is presenting to God his righteousness. I'm not like others, swindlers, 
robbers, thieves, cheaters, unjust, adulterers. In other words, I'm financially honest, God. I, I'm, in all my dealings, I'm sexually faithful to my wife. I'm a morally upright man. Not only am I a morally upright man, I'm faithful in my spiritual disciplines. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and all that I get. Now, don't miss this part right here. The Pharisee believed that his righteousness came from God. Did you notice when he prayed, he said, God, I thank you. It's important we see this. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. He gives God credit for making him upright and devout like he is. I thank you, God, that I am morally upright and spiritually disciplined and religiously devout. I thank you for that, that I'm that way. In other words, he didn't believe that he made himself righteous. He believes that came from God. The Pharisee believes that his righteousness came from God. So far, so good. That's not the problem here. The problem is that he trusts now in that righteous behavior that he's developed for his standing before God. Luke 18, 9. Let's look at this one more time. He also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And make sure you see what he's saying here. He's not saying that he's trusting in himself to make himself righteous. No, he thanks God for that. He's, trust, he's not trusting in himself to make himself righteous. As far as we know, this Pharisee would probably say, not I, but the grace of God has worked this righteousness in me. His mistake is that he's now trusting in his righteous lifestyle, his morality and certain religious practices and disciplines that he's developed for his standing before God. In other words, he believes that God enabled him to become this morally and faithful, religious, devout man. And now that he, has, that he was this morally and faithful, religious, devout man, he now believed that God was pleased with him because of this, these practices that he's now developed, these character qualities. See, he's trusting in the wrong thing. He's looking at the wrong basis for his righteousness before God. He's looking at the wrong ground for his righteousness before God. He's looking at the wrong person. He's looking at the wrong righteousness. He's looking to his own righteousness that has been developed in him for his standing before God. He was trusting in his moral character and his religious activity. And he, now he believed that that somehow made him acceptable to God. That behavior now made him morally acceptable and righteous before God. See, in this parable, he's not being presented as a legalist, one who tries to earn their salvation. That's not the issue here. One thing is the issue. This man was morally upright. He was religiously devout. He believed, and he believed that God enabled him to become that way. And he gave thanks for that. But it is his moral behavior and devout practices that he's now trusting in for his standing before God, for his justification before God. And he's dead wrong here. And so are many people today. In fact, when you see yourself standing before the holy judge of the universe, and you're about to have to be judged 
And you got to know what, what you should have to trust in to escape condemnation at that point. What are you going to look on and trust in at that moment? Now, if you look at, at that point and you trust in your moral behavior and religious practices and spiritual disciplines for your standing before God, at that point, you're wrong. Dead wrong. And what is the right answer? The right answer is simply this. Trust in Christ and his righteousness alone. Trust in Christ alone, his righteousness that he's given to you through faith. No matter how moral you become, no matter how devout you become, no matter how many disciplines you get right, lined on your life, you do not trust in that for your standing before God. You trust in Christ and Christ alone. I say that because I know how the story ends. Luke 18, verse 13. But the tax gatherer, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Then Jesus says this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Now, what did the tax collector do? He looked away from himself to God. He trusts in nothing in himself. He trusts in God. And Jesus said, God declared him righteous in his law court, justified. See, the Bible is very clear how God provides righteousness for sinners who are not righteous. Here's how God does it. There's only one way. You can't earn it. You can't, you, can't, you know, develop this and, and it be your standing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, here's what he says. He made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, listen to this, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. By trusting Christ alone and all that he did for us and all that he is for us, we are united in him. Now, and because we are in him, what he is now counts for us. So his righteousness, his morality, his devoutness, is credited to our account, imputed to us. And that is what we trust in for our standing before God, Christ's righteousness that's been given to us by faith. It's been credited to our account. That's what we're counting on. We're not counting on what is now being developed in us over time in our moral character and our development, religious devoutness and disciplines. We're not counting on that for our standing before God. Now, be careful what you think here. You think, of course, a tax collector cried out for mercy before God. He was this worthless and moral scoundrel. You see, that's exactly what the Pharisee thought. The truth is, in God's eyes, we all are in the same, or were in the same predicament as a tax gatherer. The only hope anyone has, no matter what you've done in your life, how good or how bad, the only hope anyone has is to cry out for God's mercy and grace, and that is available through Christ, by turning to Christ as your Savior and Lord. That's the only hope anyone has for their standing before God. Now, don't miss these terrifying four words in verse 14. Jesus says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went home justified, to his house justified. Here's the four words, rather than the other, the Pharisee. He didn't go home justified. 
the one who counted on his, his the moral character he's developed as a standing before God, he does not go home justified. People who trust in their righteous behavior for their basis of their acceptance and their acquittal and justification do not go home to their house justified. People who really believe that the righteousness that God even helped them do, even helped them develop, that that behavior now is you're standing before God are just wrong, dead wrong. Now, this is really serious that we get this. I'll tell you why in just a minute. We are not justified by the righteousness that we develop. I mean, that's those changed behaviors and practices. We are not justified by the righteousness we develop, but by the righteousness that Christ is for us. So we need to give Jesus the glory that he is due here. He is the one who is perfect righteousness for us and that has been imputed to us. And that is our standing before God. And that is what we trust in and that alone. No matter how many decades you've been walking with Jesus, no matter how holy you got, how righteous you got, you trust in the, Christ, in the righteousness of Christ that's been imputed to you and not what you developed in your life for your standing before God. Because if we start to trust in our, what we developed for our standing before God, then we're robbing Christ of the glory due his name because he did it all. So do not look to the righteous behaviors and practices that you develop for your standing before God. Look to Christ and Christ alone. Trust in Christ alone for what he did for you on the cross. That is all your righteousness. That is all your standing before God and you trust in him. That is it. And you've been, you've been credited from his account to yours, his righteousness. So I'm making this point because I think something real subtly happens to Christians who've walked with the Lord for a long time. What happens is you start to grow as a Christian. You start to become holier, more devout. And you, start, and you become more pure. And you, become, you get these certain disciplines that you really have intact in your life. What can start to happen because you're paying this price, you're making these sacrifices, you're doing all these things, and some other people aren't doing them, you can start viewing those people who are not doing all that with contempt. And by the way, and they know it. And that's why they don't want to be around you when you do that. I hate all the times in my life I acted more like a Pharisee than Jesus. I hate those times. I hate those times where I got this wrong that I'm talking about today, where I developed certain disciplines and, and certain moral, you know, devoutness and stuff. And I started, because of that, I started to see myself a certain way. And I started to look at others who were not paying the price I was paying. I started to look at them with contempt. And nobody wants to be viewed with contempt. And that's how the Pharisees viewed sinners, and that's why the Pharisees wanted nothing to do. I mean, sinners wanted nothing to do with the Pharisees. They stayed away from them. And that's why a lot of non-Christians stay away from Christians, because they do the same thing. They view them with contempt. But they didn't. But sinners wanted to be around Jesus. Why? Because he wasn't that way. That's not how he treated them. We shouldn't be that way either. May the Lord forgive us for all the times we have been that way, any of us. The way that we keep from becoming that way, I think, is by truly understanding that our righteousness is because we are in Christ, period. 
Not because we have developed certain practices that we're now going to somehow hold up that that gets us our, our, our standing before God. See, the difference between my unsaved neighbor and me is Christ. That's all. Just Christ. It's the only difference that matters. Not my moral character, not my practices. It's Christ. And if I understand and believe that, then I really begin to think this way. I'm just one beggar telling another beggar where to find a piece of bread. See, if we really believe that, then it'll show, how, it'll show up in how we treat other people. It'll show how we treat lost people, co-workers, classmates, neighbors. We won't view them with contempt, but with love and acceptance. And they'll notice that. It will become winsome to them. And they'll be drawn to us and they'll be drawn to Christ. So what does the deliverance of the Passover and the deliverance of the Red Sea and the deliverance of the cross of Christ all have in common? Grace, grace, grace. Our, sa- our God, our Savior's done it all. He's done it all. All we do is simply repent and believe in him. Just like Moses said, be still and see Yeshua. See the salvation of the Lord. See Jesus. It's all Christ. Our boast is in Christ. Our confidence is in Christ. Christianity, you know what Christianity is? Christ. We're in him. He's everything to us. He's everything for us. Never get past that. And those of you that have walked with, with the Lord for decades, watch out for that subtle thing that can happen where you can start to think, you know, I've developed these patterns and now because I've developed these, I, that's my standing before God and I view others with contempt. Watch out for that. That's deadly, spiritually deadly. I want to invite the worship team to come up and I just want to briefly sing this song, In Christ Alone. Let's stand together. In Christ Alone, that's it. Never, you never grow past that point of saying all my righteousness is him. He did all the work. He gets all the credit. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. We're so grateful for your amazing grace for this you on the cross took all of our sins, absorbed all our judgment. You did all the work and then you gave us your righteousness, imputed it to us. And Father, we thank you that we are the righteousness of God now, that you have made us to be that way, Lord. And we trust only in that today, what you have worked, Lord, what you have given us, imputed to us, we trust in that. And Lord, we do pray that the more we walk with you, the holier we'll get, but we won't trust in that for our standing, Lord. Our standing will always be in Christ, in Christ alone.
the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath Jesus commands my destiny 